A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on March 25th of 2020. I am Anna Garcia, and as you can see, we are recording this episode under the Safer at Home guidelines. That is my kitchen. Joining me today from her home here in Los Angeles is criminal defense attorney, Allison Treasel. Allison, welcome back, and thank you so thank much. Thank you for having me. I'm also at home. I'm home under the Safer at Home. I've got three kids trying to homeschool, and um, but this is definitely the safest place to be. It is, isn't it? And, and we it had is. said to all of our listeners and our viewers last week, Um, that we were going to try our very best under the circumstances of this pandemic to record the podcast every single week if possible. And so this is the latest version of it. And we are, and we are. Um, I am curious though, Allison, how is the coronavirus pandemic affecting cases currently in the courts right now? I mean, it really is slowing everything down, putting everything out. So I currently have 61 cases that are open in different counties. Um, I live in Los Angeles, but I have cases in Ventura and um, in Orange County and different counties. So we called every single one of the courtrooms. And while there's different procedures for all, because it's criminal, there's constitutional issues at play. So everybody has a right to a speedy trial. And that may change, by the way. I know that the... um, that the president has and um, William Barr have talked about suspending some of those constitutional rights, which should be kind of, it's an interesting side discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultimately, civil cases um, have been put on pause. So unless it's a domestic violence, like a restraining order issue, but probate issues, family law issues, civil suits, they've all been basically put on pause and they'll be continued for a period of time. But emergency criminal matters like arraignments and preliminary hearings, they have to go forward. So courts are basically open on a limited basis, taking people who, when you get arrested, you essentially have to see a judge within either 48 or 72 hours. So they are doing everything they can on a much more limited basis to make sure that people who are in custody get to see that judge. Wow. And are you as an attorney able to either call in or come up with a different way of participating that is safer right. than so, going down so to the a lot of house? a lot of judges are allowing telephonic appearances, um, which I am obviously grateful for. Um, you know, some judges are trying to figure out how to make that work. Um, But so far, I've been able to make telephonic appearances. All right. Well, we're glad that you're safe and still able to represent your clients. Justice still has to turn, right? I mean, you know, some of these, you can't have somebody sit in custody indefinitely without seeing the judge. So those constitutional rights, you really don't want to suspend them indefinitely um, because people have a right to a speedy trial. And that needs to still be honored even under the most dire circumstances. Allison, we've got two fascinating cases wow. today. Wow. <laughs> As always. This is, and a- this is the day of like mentally ill female defendants. I mean, I, I unbelievable. 
Yeah, they are. And we also are going to have an update on Gannon Stout, the, the little boy who was That's missing since January. Um, his body has been found. So we'll have an update on that a little bit later. So these are the cases. These are the headlines from the cases this week. A woman in Tennessee is being charged after allegedly lying about giving birth and then and then the shooting death of a one-year-old baby, a baby that, by the way, never, ever existed. So the whole thing is a hoax. That's one case. And then the second case is out of Vermont. A woman there has pleaded not guilty to murder charges after police say that she slit her boyfriend's throat, claiming it was self-defense. And get this, when the police arrived at the home, the crime scene, she was sitting there having a cup of tea in the middle of all the blood and the corpse. Is that not gross? It's, I mean, it really is disturbing, disturbing, disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So th those are the two cases we're going to look at. But first, a word from one of our favorite companies, Amazon's Audible. Love them. Here at True Crime Daily, the podcast, we are always looking for new true crime recommendations, true crime stories. And that's where Audible comes in. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks. And if you can't decide what to listen to, don't worry. You can keep all of your credits for up to one year and then use them at one time to binge on your favorite series, which is actually pretty cool. I am currently listening to Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill lies, spies, and a conspiracy to protect predators. And I'm going to tell you a secret. It is my very first audiobook ever because I love to read. But this time I wanted to hear this book in Ronan Farrow's own words, and I wanted to hear his voice, and it made all the difference in the world, especially since he's a journalist. I'm a journalist. I was just so touched by the story, so it made it so real. It's like Ronan Farrow is telling me this story very personally. So if you're really into audiobooks or, like me, new to it and want to give it a try, we've got a great deal for our True Crime Daily podcast listeners. By going to audible.com slash TCD for True Crime Daily and signing up, you will receive one credit every month for any title that you're interested in. Plus, Every month, you're going to get two Audible originals from a monthly selection and access to daily news digests from the likes of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditations, which we could all use right now. So all you have to do is go to audible.com slash TCD or text TCD to 500-500. Once again, you can either visit audible.com slash TCD or text TCD to 500-500. So our first case, Allison, is out of Bolton, Vermont. I call this murder and a cup of tea. 30-year-old Averill Beliveau has been charged with second-degree murder for killing her boyfriend by slitting his neck. When paramedics and police arrived at the apartment, there was blood everywhere. He was dead, and she was sitting there very calmly sipping on a cup of tea, just like this. So let's break down what happened versus what she says happened. And sometimes it's hard to figure out what the truth is, except for the actual physical evidence. Allison, yeah. what do you think? I mean, well, first of all, we can talk about the truth because the truth is that as she's sitting there finishing her hot toddy or whatever it is, there's literally blood everywhere and a dead body in a studio apartment. I mean, a studio apartment. She actually slept there 
with this dead body. Um, at some point, apparently, she goes to, this happens on a Thursday, she goes right. to her parents to change her clothes, but returns, never calls the police for several days, sleeps in the studio apartment with his dead body, blood everywhere, and then finally gets around to calling the police. Yeah, this took place at um, a ski resort of all places in Vermont. Uh, the couple shared a tiny apartment, like you said, a studio at the Bolton Ski Valley Resort. So, you know, this is a place where people have a lot of money and are spending a lot of time there. So Avril calls 911 on Saturday, March 14th. She said that she slit her boyfriend's neck and she said that she did it in self-defense. This was her living boyfriend, who Allison was 15 years older than she, Cameron Falling. Now, he's dead in the apartment, and the couple apparently had been together for about a year. Now, this is what happens when the police get there. She, she said to 911, and she said to the police that this was a domestic violence situation, that she feared for her life. She believed that her boyfriend was going to kill her if she didn't act. That is what she told them. Yeah. But let me, let me talk a little bit about that, okay? So first of all, you have a situation where she slit his throat, and apparently she did it from behind. So I'm going to talk about the things that are going to work against her, and there's actually a few things that are going to work in her favor, surprisingly, okay? So she talks about how they would fight over doing chores and that she was mad at him about um, she wanted him to buy pot for her and he was unwilling to do that, okay? Um, that That's pretty unreasonable, right? I mean, that's pretty unreasonable. What, when that he wouldn't that's buy the, the pot? <laughs> right, of course, of course. Or maybe <laughs> some people think it's reasonable. Um, but she, uh, she allegedly bought a knife, or actually two knives, and you can talk about the second reason why, but she bought two knives several weeks before, which shows some measure of premeditation, okay? And then certainly going behind him um, and slitting his throat is not someone that's protecting themselves against an act of violence. And the, the coroner has actually said the only one that had defensive wounds is the victim who's dead, that she didn't have any, any wounds on her body to show that, in fact, he was the aggressor. So that, those are big problems for her, okay? I did find, however, a nugget of something that may help her, okay? First of all, you cannot discount how deranged a person is who's sitting there in a pool of somebody else's blood drinking tea. So please understand that there probably is some mental health issues at play here, which may... Allison, Allison isn't yes. it possible that she was in shock? Uh, maybe, but I think that it's... I, I, I do think that there's... I think that she's not, um, you know, uh, firing on all cylinders, as they say. I don't know well, if that's when a I legal saw, defense, but... Um, well, when I saw her mugshot, I have to admit her eyes did not, you know, I, this is not a technical term, crazy eye, but right, right, she got definitely you. was, she wasn't looking right. I got you. Now, um, here's the thing. She has, there was apparently, and I'm looking at my notes because this is important stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. There was something about a prior call um, oh, that, yes. Right. So apparently the boyfriend had broken her finger at some point. Okay. Um, yeah, there was I, a pre here it is. I found it. There was a previous incident in the summer of 2019. Averill claimed that Cameron repeatedly shut a door on her head, broke her nose, gave her a black eye. 
She says that she didn't report it immediately, but did a little bit later. And then in November of same year, he broke her finger. So there are and there was an arrest for that. There is was an arrest for that. Correct. I am not sure about that. I think there was. I think there was an arrest for that or some there was some resolution and she did call the police on that. So you have some evidence that he may have, in fact, been an aggressor at some point. Okay, Um, but the problem is the problem is that for a valid self-defense, there has to be an immediate threat. There has to be an immediate threat that this person is going to harm you. And you can use like force in protecting yourself. So it's a very uphill battle for the defense to claim that she was so concerned and there was such an immediate threat that she buys a knife weeks before and then slits his neck from behind. That's a very tough sell. Well, she said that the boyfriend was choking her. This is, you know, in the middle of this altercation that he was choking her. Again, police said they didn't find any evidence on her body of a struggle in any way or that she had been harmed, but they did find his defensive wounds. So the knife is also interesting because she told police that she walked toward him with the knife behind her back. So he never saw it coming. And it appears from the autopsy because they have determined that this was a homicide that he was slit from behind. Right. So she came up to him. At least this is what we know so far because they're not releasing all the information, of course. Now, what I find interesting here is, the, can we get back to the knives? So no, please, this is, now this is strange. So please, are, are we going to talk about the eye surgery business? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so go for it. Okay. So she apparently had two knives that she had purchased a few weeks earlier. One of the knives she used to slit his throat, and she doesn't deny slitting his throat. She said that she did it in self-defense. But when she explains why she has the knives and why she bought them, this is where I were like the officers, their eyes must have been like, oh boy, oh boy, what's happening here? This is what she said, that she bought the knives because she recently had eye surgery and she accused the surgeon of intentionally sewing her eyes smaller. I've so, never heard of this before. Never. Oh, wait, she's, but we're not done. That uh, sounds, okay, so she's already accusing a surgeon of intentionally leaving her eyes smaller. Right, right, like, right, For right, some right. sadistic reason. Yeah. But then she said she bought the knife so she could cut her eye and make it bigger so she could see. I have never heard of a situation where someone thinks it is a good idea to perform surgery on your own eye to make it bigger. I mean, that's, see, and and what do we say in common terms? That's insanity. And so one of the things that I think, and Anna, I I am fairly confident I've been doing criminal defense for a very long time. Um, You know, she's looking um, at 20 years to life. I mean, that's, that's what the charge carries. And she's looking at that. And I do think she will ultimately be convicted. She is of course, um, pled not guilty. And we have to assume that she's not guilty until this case makes its way through the system. But if I was a betting person, I do not think that her self-defense argument is going to hold much water. I do think, though, that they should be using this mental health issue in mitigation. And if I was her defense attorney, the first thing I would do was have a full 
psychological workup done and find out what is going on with this woman. Right. Well, well, clearly the trying to cut her own eye and accusing the surgeon of shutting her eye and making it smaller, right. you know, does, does show that perhaps she's having some issues. But, but again, I want to get back to one basic thing. If she indeed is a victim of domestic violence and has been in an abusive relationship, is it possible that she snapped that night, just snapped? Well, they charge her with a second. They charge her with second degree murder. So, which means, which means what? Because if you believe sort of that it was passion, it's sort of a heat of passion argument. So, um, they didn't charge her with the first, which would be premeditation, and there is enough evidence to at least with with the purchase of the knife several weeks ahead, and coming up behind him and putting the knife behind your back. You don't have to. It's not long to form the mental state of premeditation, but they charged her with the second. And here's what's also interesting. They are not letting her out on bail because they believe that she is a danger to herself and to society. So they're not, they're not bailing. They're not making that possible. So I can see the argument that she's a danger to society. I mean, you know, look, look at what she is accused of doing. The danger to self must be that when they brought her into custody, there was some belief that she had suicidal ideations or, or was expressing some kind of self-harm. So what does it say, though, if we could just um, kind of break down one part of this crime? It's that part between when she slits his throat until she calls the cops. So the authorities believe that he died that, that he was attacked at 9 p.m. on Thursday night and that by 11 p.m. that he was dead. And then she admits to then getting in her car, driving around, making some stops, going to her parents' house. She took a shower. She changed her clothes. She ultimately goes back to that studio apartment and she does not call the authorities, doesn't call 911 until 7 a.m. on Saturday morning. That's two days later. Well, I think it shows that she knew the difference between right and wrong. And I think that, I mean, look, here's the problem that she's going to have. It looks like a a cruel, cruel act. It's a strange indifference to human life when you're sitting there with a dead body, blood everywhere, and you, and you're making tea for yourself. I mean, that, that, that's pretty cruel, pretty shows some real extreme indifference to human life. Um, I, I think that this woman is going to get convicted of murder. All right. We'll see what happens. She is in custody and she will not be released because she's a danger to herself and the public state prosecutors. Allison, our next case is fake baby, fake death, and all because this woman supposedly wanted attention. Very bizarre case. This is out of Nashville, Tennessee, and police there say that a local woman made up a pregnancy. And then she made up a story about the baby being murdered all because she wanted attention. And police are saying that the entire thing is a hoax. This is the case of 32-year-old Glenna Pinkerton of Donaldson, Tennessee. She has been charged with filing a false police report, which is a felony. Where do we begin with this one, Allison? I mean, first of all, I started this by saying this is the day of mentally ill female defendants. Um, I mean, think of how much attention 
she wanted. That was her explanation for why she did it. Although I want to get into that in a minute, but some of the details. So she goes so far in this deranged story that she takes the police to a place where she says she has buried her daughter in a shallow grave. Um, It is as disturbing. and, And really, I mean, think about the time that was wasted with police resources, which is really secondary to how sick this story is. So let's unravel who she says did it. She says that it was her ex-boyfriend. So she essentially pins a murder on him, a murder of a infant child on him, says her only role was to bury the child. But why is she pinning it on him? And, you know, you and I have, have dealt with really kind of sick, twisted cases where people are attention-seeking or they're seeking revenge. Um, she was willing to say that he did it. If he gets arrested and charged with it, he's spending the rest of his life in prison. So I was trying to figure out, is this a revenge for something? Did he break up with her? Why does she pin him? What, what was the cause of their breakup? Clearly, something was not right with her. Maybe he picked up on that. Uh, there are a few things there, Allison. What's interesting is how police became aware of this. Right. It was a relative who contacted police. It was her own brother. On March 6th, Glenna's own brother told the police that he was worried because his sister was making some really disturbing statements and telling these stories that didn't make any sense to him. Ronald Pinkerton said that she was talking about having had this baby and having buried the baby. So what was troubling is that the brother, who presumably would be the uncle of this one-year-old girl, never knew her to be pregnant. They were close enough where he would know whether she was pregnant, and he for sure knew that he was not an uncle. So he was so concerned. He called the police. 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 And of course, police take this seriously. Of course. they, They go to Glenna, the woman, the alleged mom, I'll call her here, And she verifies to police, she says, oh, yes, this is true. This has all happened. And she said that she had buried her daughter in Nashville at a place called Two Rivers Park. And so she takes police to the area, which you described, and they brought canine and cadaver dogs with them. And they searched the whole area trying to find the body. She additionally explains that the baby was killed in some kind of a shooting or an altercation and that she was shot in the head and that, as you said, the ex-boyfriend is the and presumably the father of this non-existent child is the one who killed her. So she also tells the cops that this incident happened two years ago in 2018. So the cops search. They find nothing. So they say all right, something's not right here. They go back to Glenna again for another interview after the search. And that's when she finally admits that she made the entire thing up. She never gave birth. There was no baby. There was no shooting. There is no dead corpse. There is, well, there's no corpse. There's, there's nothing. And when the police asked her why she did this, why she made up the story, she said, quote, attention, I guess. All right, so Anna, let me tell you. Let me tell you when she gets into legal hot water. Okay, so mm-hmm. let's say that somebody tells a story, a lie to family members or friends. Right. So um, we've heard of stories how people say, 
you know, I'm, I'm sick when I'm really not sick. Okay. It's when they start asking for money because they're sick. Can you please fund that? That there's some level of fraud. Okay. But let's just say that she tells this twisted story to her brother. Okay. There's really no crime. I mean, because he's not law enforcement. It's strange and she needs to get mental help for any kind of mental delusions that she may be having if she truly believes it, but it's not a crime. When it becomes a crime is when the police ask her about it, she then confirms the story, keeps it going. So now she's making a false police report to the police. So that's when it becomes a crime. So if she would have said, you know what, I made that story up. I was trying to get attention. My, my boyfriend had broken up with me. I was at a low point in my life. I wanted people to feel badly for me. It's really not a crime. It's when she continued the lie and the police were questioning her about it and she gives them those false statements. That's when she starts to commit a crime. Now, filing a false police report here is a felony. You can get between two and 12 years and I'm going to tell you why, if convicted, she is going to get more than the minimum two years. She actually has a fairly lengthy criminal history. So in 2012, she's convicted of drug charges, and she gets six months in custody. In 2013, she is convicted of burglary charges which where she's the getaway driver and it's stemming from a residential robbery, which is a very serious charge. And even though she pleads guilty just to the burglary charges, she gets two years in prison for it. Then there's another incident where there's a domestic assault causing great bodily injury. And at that incident, she actually makes death threats to the police. So oh boy. She, yes. So she has a fairly extensive criminal history. And I think it's going to come into play. And when the judge is deciding what to do, and let's remember, this is not just a making a false statement to the police. The time and resources and energy that she had them exhaust, taking away from time that should have been sent solving real crimes and dealing with real victims, they're going to punish her for that without question. It's really shocking. And it's such an extreme story. I had the baby. She was a year old. I buried the baby, but her dad shot her in the head. I mean, it's really, I guess if you're going to make up a story, and it's elaborate. Yeah. going to make up a big one. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I guess, uh, Ms. Glenna, based on your, your research of her criminal history, might be spending some time behind bars. I think so too. And again, look, she's pled not guilty. Um, and so she is presumed not guilty. But again, when I look at this and I look at the facts of the case and, and I look at her criminal history, I do think she'll probably get some time. We now have an update on a story that so many of our listeners and viewers have been uh, commenting on Facebook and on YouTube that we just have to do an update because this is a, a case that's really gripped the country. It's about 11-year-old Gannon Stout. He's the little boy from Colorado Springs who has been missing since January 27th. His disappearance was the subject of a massive search in the state of Colorado. And his stepmother claimed that the little boy had left in the afternoon, had walked out the house to go to a neighbor's house, and that he never came back. But her story was later proved to be false 
when a neighbor's surveillance video showed her leaving the house in the morning with Gannon and then returning later, but without the boy. So there's no way he could have ever left the house if he wasn't there based on this videotape. On March 2nd, authorities arrested his stepmother, Letitia Stauk, in Myrtle Beach and charged her with his murder, even though there was no body. So it was really dramatic to, to tell the parents, the family, and the rest of the country that this little boy was dead and they had no body and they couldn't tell us why they were going, to, why they were charging her with murder. So Allison, about a hundred search warrants were served. And two weeks later, after the stepmother is arrested, the boy's body is finally found in of all places, Florida. So 1,400 miles from his home in Colorado, 700 miles away from where Leticia, the stepmother was in Myrtle Beach. So at some point during this investigation, the mother left Colorado Springs and moved to Myrtle Beach because she had friends there and she had family there. So the boy's remains were found on March 18th. They were found in Pace, Florida, which is by Pensacola, Florida, on the, on the panhandle. His remains were found by a work crew from the Florida Department of Transportation, and they were working along Highway 90, which is near the Escambia River Bridge. And they found his remains in a suitcase. According to the preliminary examination of his body, authorities say that this boy was struck with a blunt object. So he was struck, he was stabbed, and he was shot. How much hate in your body do you have to have for a, an innocent 11-year-old boy to kill him this way? It is one of the most shocking, sad cases that we have covered in a really long time. I mean, I look at that little boy's face and it's beyond heartbreaking. Um, I, on, I'm left with so many questions um, I think that, you know, the police and all of law enforcement, and they, the FBI was involved. There's a lot of agencies that have been involved in this case. And the prosecuting agency have been really tight lipped about what they knew when. Um, I'm sure that they have a lot more information than they've released to the public, because I do not believe that um, just relying on this video surveillance from a neighbor where it shows Gannon leaving with um, with the stepmother Leticia, and then she comes home alone. That's not enough to get. That's not enough to announce murder charges when there's no body. So there's a lot of unanswered questions. But when you find the body and it's in that kind of condition, I agree with you. The hate, the hate that you have to have, where it is truly, and I hate to use the word, but it's truly overkill. You ask why? Why would she do something like this? Um, it's strange. I know that the police have asked for additional help for people living in that area near Florida. They've asked to check any home video that they may have, surveillance or otherwise. They've asked businesses. Um, I think it's a period of like a four-day stretch in the early in the early part of February, um, and so they must have some reason to believe that she was in that area then and would like additional proof. And that's where our viewers, certainly the ones that are listening from Florida. And around the world, if, if they know anybody in that general area, to have them search for anything, because it really will help the police kind of fill in the pieces of this terrific, just horrible, horrific puzzle.
horrible. The authorities are asking specifically in the dates between February 3rd and February 5th that if you saw her or saw anything like her, and especially in that area, to please contact them. My question is this. Did she do this herself or did she have help? I realize she's charged and she has, you know, she says she's not guilty. I, I, I understand that. But that boy, his body ended up in Florida somehow in a suitcase and somebody put him there. So the question is, is the suspect responsible for putting him there or did the stepmother have help? Well, here's what I find interesting. And again, because they've been so tight-lipped with the investigation, we really don't know a lot of details. But in my experience, okay, in my experience, when you know that much information, you've gotten that information from somebody. So whether it is her or somebody that she confided in that is now like a confidential informant or a potential witness, someone is giving them that information. Is that person involved somehow? Who knows? But I think as this case unfolds and those search warrants become unsealed, we're going to learn that the police got this information from somebody because all the detective work in the world, it's hard to believe, led them to three different cities and three different states without somebody's help who had intimate knowledge of the crime. What I'm trying to figure out is, you know, when she initially called the police, she said that, you know, he, had, he hadn't come back and she thought he had run away. So the initial investigation was treating Gannon as a runaway. And then that changed, like within 24 to 48 hours, the investigation changed from that into a missing boy and then maybe the, a potential abduction. But later on, authorities said, no, there was no abduction at hand. So my question is this, that, you know, she had, let's, let's just say that if the stepmother did do this, she had to have not only just killed Gannon, but then put him in a suitcase and then under the glare and under the microscope of not only the authorities, but all these searchers and volunteers who were searching the area for Gannon's body, where was this suitcase the whole time? That's what I want to know. Oh. Because she had to have left Colorado or someone to then drive to Florida, because I don't think you check in that bag, and drive to Florida and then get to Myrtle Beach if she did it herself. That's what I'm wondering. Where was the suitcase while the authorities were, were searching? Well, and remember, I mean, pretty quickly, the, the boy's biological mother, so the biological father and the biological mother who have really joined forces, and if there's any silver lining here, they, they have just come together to grieve the loss of their son. And if you see them, it's just so tragic. Um, but um, the, the mother, when interviewed, said, there is no way my son, who's 11 years old, would ever run away. I mean, it's not possible. So pretty immediately, the idea that he was an 11-year-old runaway uh, went by the by. So then you do have to focus pretty immediately on the stepmother because she's the last one to have seen him. And that's where most investigations begin, as we know. So it is a very fair question that you have. The answer lies somewhere in those sealed search warrants, I can assure mm -hmm. you. But she was in, she was under their glare uh, immediately. 
Right. So you may be right. There may have been somebody that was assisting her, but I'll tell you, and I'm going to say this again, they got, the police got that information from someone who had some direct knowledge. So the other thing that has happened in the middle of all this, which is minor in comparison to the murder of Gannon and the finding of his body, is that the father, so Gannon's biological father, Al, who was married to the stepmother, has now filed for divorce. He filed for divorce within days of her being arrested for his murder way before the the boy's body had been found. And now authorities have issued um, a gag order. They're not telling us anymore. Now that they have found Gannon's body, they're really being tight-lipped. Understandable. They've also added more charges uh, to Leticia Stout, Uh, Not only is she charged with his murder, but uh, additional charges. And what's interesting here is that prosecutors say these are basically going to be enhancements um, that if she gets convicted, she will get a stiffer sentence. I don't know how stiffer a sentence you can get if you ultimately get convicted of murder. Well, if she gets convicted, she's spending the rest of her life in prison. I mean, at least. I mean, that's happening. She's spending the rest of her life in prison. Can I add something? One of the things that if I'm law enforcement or if I'm a prosecutor, I'm looking to is I'm going to interview the biological father and I'm going to ask him, were there any prior incidents of of child abuse? Did you see her lay hands on your child? How was she around him? I'm going to I'm going to see if there's any DCFS reports of child abuse. Did any teacher notice any behavior or any bruising or anything that would indicate that this woman actually was physically abusive to him, mentally, emotionally abusive to him prior to this. That's got to be part of this investigation for sure. Absolutely. And we do have some comments, as I said, this is something that so many of our listeners have really wanted to stay on top of. So this, these are just some of the comments from our listeners. Lauren C. writes, I was so hoping that they would find him alive. And I think everyone, of course, we always dream and hope that uh, a missing child is, is born, is, is found alive, excuse me. Paula L. writes, heartbreaking, but also glad that his family will finally lay their son to rest. Rest in peace, Gannon. I hope that the evil step monster gets what she deserves. And Rochelle S. writes, being a stepmother is a blessing she doesn't deserve. I pray for peace for that little boy. So sad. Um, we also want to share some other comments. Um, you all have been so encouraging and supportive of us continuing these po- these podcasts under the circumstances where we can't work in our studio. Uh, everyone is working remotely. We have two. Pro- we have a producer working on this remotely, and we have an engineer. And we're so glad that everyone's able to work. But it really it is um, your support and these kind, kind messages that you've been leaving for us that encourages us to keep going. I hope you don't mind that we're doing it from my kitchen. I tried to tidy up for you. So we wanted to highlight some of the more positive comments at a time when, um, you know, it's, it's a scary, difficult time for all of us. And this is, you know, a reminder also how we're so connected. So Leo O writes, thank you so much for doing this in this crisis here in Norway, he's, he's watching in Norway, we're more or less on lockdown. It's not easy. So again, thank you. I needed this. Cecilia R. writes, thank you for keeping the podcast going. Olivia E. writes, thank you so much for doing this for us, Anna. I love your show. It's a great distraction right now. God bless and stay safe and healthy out there, XO. 
And then Hannah R. writes, I agree with you about needing a distraction. I've started to limit myself to only watching news and information about the virus to just three or four hours a day because it's easy to get totally obsessed and terrified about it. So I, for one, appreciate your dedication and effort. So we very much appreciate all of you supporting us. Allison, thank you for helping us today uh, with your great analysis and comments to continue our podcast because, you know, we do need a distraction. I, Absolutely. I want, right? Absolutely. And, you know, um, these, these are really, really scary times. And I agree. Um, talking about cases like this where today's topics were strange and bizarre and interesting um, is sort of a, dis- a distraction that is welcomed. I mean, you all do such a wonderful job. I'm so honored to be on the show. Oh, we love having you, Allison. Allison, where can people find you if they want to reach out or just follow you on social so, media? So I'm the legal expert on, on Access Hollywood. Um, I'm also the legal expert at KTLA in Los Angeles, which is Channel 5. Um, I have a website called Wild About Trial, where we stream cases going on around the world. And I'm also a practicing criminal defense attorney in Los Angeles. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Allison. And you also are the mother of three boys. So I know you have your hands full. Oh yeah. We have three. So far we have three broken windows. We have a door that has been broken. We have a sink that has been broken. So I don't, I I don't know if I'll be happy if our house is still standing when this is done. All right. Well, you take care, Allison. Also, you can find me on all social media platforms at, at Anna G news. That's Anna with one N. Um, And of course, if you are a regular listener or viewer, you also know we do read your comments and I also try to respond whenever I can. And I always appreciate your kind words. And as always, you can find this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, plus on YouTube. And you can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. (laughs) 